Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 20th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritan, something we will be discussing a little later today on this podcast, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about the rise of the New Puritans in relation to an absolutely jaw-droppingly anti-Semitic article in the New York Times uh, released last night about how uh, Israelis eating and making hummus is an act of uh, imperialist colonial aggression against Palestinians. But before we get to that, we're going to do raw naked politics. And I want to start by reading from uh, Mark Halperin's superb Wild World of News newsletter, which I heartily commend to every, he's been a guest on the podcast, and it is uh, really good. And here's what he says today, would be an error to evaluate the trajectory of the midterms by looking for chronically only data fragments that point in the direction of the dominant reality that a red tsunami is on the way. Want to point out that this was not anything that Mark was saying six or eight weeks ago, nor were we, nor was anybody. So we the the trajectory was in the early part of 2022, it looked like a red tsunami was on the way. And then news interrupted that, and everybody started um getting more cautious, and Democrats started getting more confident, and Republicans started getting more nervous. But he says, let's not just look at the data points to suggest this. Uh, let's look at, to be clear, the likely prospect of such a swell is currently a reality, not a narrative, per both Republican and Democratic sources working on actual campaigns in 2022. But while there remain some bright spots and glimmers for Team Blue right now, remember one fundamental truth about political waves. In the end, they almost always flow in one direction, and they usually flow hard. Obviously, that's what a wave is. Waves don't go out and come in at the same time. They don't go one direction and go the other direction. So you're either talking about a Republican wave or you're not talking about a wave at all. You're talking about an election that avoids the wave. And the thing is that everybody is looking at this and saying the data are all flowing in one way, and that is the Republican direction. And he says... I keep hearing it from all quarters that crime is driving some voters to the right as much or more than inflation, including some upper income elites who see the failure of local Democrats to competently address basic issues of public safety as part of a larger emotional fear about bedlam. And guess what? An experienced California pollster, Justin Wallen, just came out with a poll in Los Angeles. There is an interesting mayoral race in Los Angeles between uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass Democrat and a Republican independent whatever guy named Rick Caruso, a rich guy whose entire campaign is about homelessness and crime. It is about nothing else but homelessness and crime. He's come in to say, I'm going to fix what is broken here. People are defecating on the streets of downtown. There are there are uh, Hoovervilles in, in Venice. There are nobody is doing anything about the degradation of the city. And uh According to the latest poll, there have been, remember, we're living in a time, despite our focus on polling, when there is less and less of it. And so we're going on the basis of very inadequate information. Rick Caruso is leading Karen Bass by three points. I was told six weeks ago 
that uh, Caruso, while running an impressive campaign, that Bass had it in the bag. But there was almost no polling. So that actually supports the idea that crime in blue places like Los Angeles, which is not only a blue place, but a wonderfully racist place where heads of the of the city council are calling, uh, you know, Latino heads of Latino heads of the city council are calling black children monkeys and attacking their gay dads uh, in a in a wonderful explosion of uh, multicultural, uh, gorgeous mosaicism. So anyway, there's that data point. Number two, the New York Times story this morning about President Biden's eschewing of the kind of homestretch rallies on offer from his predecessors is one of the most important essential reads of this cycle. The Democrats' leader has not held a midterms campaign rally since Labor Day. He will be making two stops in Pennsylvania's two biggest cities today without such an event. President of the United States is coming to your city and is not having a rally. Why? You know why. The New York Times knows why. Noah was pointing out that Axios had a piece on this subject last week. They know why. Nobody is saying why. Because they don't want Biden in front of a crowd of 10,000 people. And he starts saying, I don't. I I let people get married in the privacy of their own bedrooms. Not like it's any better at the private fundraisers that he's going to be attending, where we hear about how you know Armageddon. we're on the brink of no, it, right Armageddon. No, but, <laughs> no, but if hear about those too. But if the president has a rally in Pennsylvania, MSNBC will cover it live, and who knows what will happen? Ron Klain is sticking him in Delaware three days a week. So that he can sit in his basement and have his blood recirculated. And not have a public record of who visits and talks to right. him during that time. Just sorry, my little historian's rant. Yes. We do not know during that time who he is seeing. There is no public log like there is at the White House. This is yes. very bad for transparency. Just right. throwing that out there. So Mark says, everyone knows that the real additional reasons for this absence, as well as the political implications for 2022, 2023, and 2024. And it is just such an amazing state of affairs. We have a president of the United States two years after he is supposedly going to, two years before he's supposedly going to run again, whose political people are too afraid of putting him in front of a crowd. So is he really going to be able to run again? Honestly, can't make public appearances except in a small room. That's if there's a wave. Crazy. If, there's, if there's a COVID wave, he can run again. Yeah, it has absolutely nothing to do with whether he's a good candidate or not. It has everything to do with internal Democratic Party dynamics and generally party dynamics. It's a hostage crisis. It's not like they want to be in this position. Right. Of course. Um, and uh, Celinda Lake and then Mark quotes Celinda Lake, the Democratic pollster, saying a quarter to third of independents are still undecided and they moved slightly from leaning slightly Democratic to slightly Republican. These voters, she said, tend to have lower incomes than core members of either party and are more concerned about the economy and inflation. Ms. Lake said the Democratic Party's challenge, remember, we are, what are we, 18 days? 19 days, yeah. 19 days from the election. And of course, people are voting now, uh, is to show voters that it has a better economic plan than the GOP, possibly by focusing on the party's efforts to cut medical costs and protect Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Good luck with that through less than three weeks from election day. You're going to try to change the voters' opinion of the Democratic Party's standing on the economy when the inflation rate is running 
at higher than eight percent. Well, think of it this way: think of the uh, that that persuade that still persuadable voter that she's that she's talking about there. If they have to, you know, grab their purse and walk or drive, you know, uh, to the nearest grocery store, but on the way there are worried about maybe you know some mild property crime or maybe some you know being harassed by a violently mentally ill person on the street on their way, and then they go and they buy their groceries, uh, burning up gas that's now at you know four or five bucks a gallon to get there. They go to the grocery store, have the massive sticker shock of the price of everything they need just to get by and come back home. Like that is not a person who's going to be persuaded by the idea that, well, you know, down the road, we're really going to help you out here. And and all the problems you're experiencing, those are those are Republicans and big businesses fault. It's really has nothing to do with the fact that a Democrat has run your city or your state for 40 years. I mean, they're not speaking to these people. I feel I the other day I my gas tank drained close to empty. I know I shouldn't do that. It's not safe. Whatever. Okay. Pull into gas station. I'm in Connecticut. I pull into a gas station and I'm like, oh look, the gas is three forty a gallon. Great. I'm telling the story like because it, it it something came home to me. So I'm like, yeah. Wow, it's really, you know, because there was some point, you know, two months ago when it was $5 a gallon, now it's $3.40 a gallon. So I actually had this moment of like, that's better, you know. Then I filled my tank. So I have a 16-gallon, I have a Honda Odyssey, I have a 16-gallon tank. And when it was done at $3.40 a gallon, the, the cost on my credit card was $54. And then I got hit by the sticker shock. I mean, I got I got hit by the checkout cost because you drive by and you see the number on the sign that says three forty four point nine per gallon, and so you might, as you're driving by in your Uber when you don't have a car, say, "Oh, you see, gas prices are going down." That doesn't make the that doesn't make the the checkout shock cost any less. Fifty plus dollars is more than we have been paying at at the gas pump. You know, with 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 momentary spasms for twenty years, practically, and maybe even longer in some ways. And so, you know, like even that thing that Democrats have been clinging to—that gas prices are going down—they're not at two. You know, they're not like you fill up your gas tank and it's under $40 a gallon and you're like, okay, well, that's great. Like I'm in, I'm in great shape. I was thinking about doing a drive from New York to Cleveland in December and I was trying to figure out pricing, like, should I drive or should I fly? You know, what are the plane tickets to Cleveland versus driving? Cause it's seven and a half hours and all of that. And, you know, I'd be taking my son with me to Cleveland, you know? So the plane tickets would be like five, six hundred dollars. Driving to and from would be close to three hundred dollars. Not two hundred dollars, not not one hundred and fifty dollars, three hundred dollars. So the price differential between using your car and you and 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 not using your, you know, that's like a very big deal. Like it's like, well, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I should. I could just I'll, I'll eat the extra three hundred dollars and save the time. Drive right. the seven hours. Yeah. 
Well, but this anyway. this is another thing where th there's also been a lot of volatility in gas prices, right? So that that also creates a sense of anxiety and unease among people who actually have to budget, which again, I don't think anyone who's working in this White House has to budget their gas uh, gas bill every month and weekly if they're commuters. Every, every most Americans have to do that if they if they get to their jobs and have to drive their kids around in their cars. That is part of their budget, and they have seen that fluctuate widely, which makes budgeting harder. But the messaging has been so weird on this, right? So it was it was Ukraine's fault or it's Russia's fault. And now it's big oil. They're going all in on like Blake saying, oh, these greedy oil Remember companies. Remember it was the gas station. It was fault. the gas Remember station. <laughs> gas yeah. station. It's everybody's responsibility, but a president who's had a very clear energy policy that has gotten us into a lot of this mess. And the, the idea that it's to blame big oil now, which I know they're very big on and Biden loves to scold the big oil companies, they're subject to the cost of inflation for everything else too, like to replacement parts for their drilling equipment. I mean, everything that is goes into running any kind of business, even a big oil business, has been affected by supply chain issues and inflation too. So those prices get passed down. But this idea that there's no responsibility taken here, right? There's no not, not even an acknowledgement of the pain in a genuine way that a retail politician should know how to do. And it is going to cost them. Those Biden stickers that everyone was putting on the on the gas pumps that said, I did that. The, I mean, yeah. there's a reason that took off for a while. People feel like that. Like, White House. Well, but but they, by the way, they were happy to take responsibility for the blip in time when the prices stopped rising. Right. Right. That, that was all them. That was all that was all Biden, which had a lot to do with demand declining in response Absolutely. to inflationary pressures. Just deliveries were down. White House uh, chief of staff Ron Klain tweets this out right now. It's as though he's listening to our recording. Um, hopefully the NSA is not doing that. I was just going to say uh, we really well, don't want that to be the case. I guess it's, I was thinking about how possible that could be. Um, he um, found this gentleman by the name of Patrick DeHaan, who goes by the handle Gas Buddy Guy. He is described as not defined by political agendas. He talks about oil and refined products. He's an analyst of gasoline prices and a gasoline myth price myth buster. And he has the following tweet. Gas prices over the next couple of weeks. I predict lots of green arrows going down. The West Coast, the Great Lakes are going to see the most relief. This is his prediction based on how he analyzes the market. Quote, Ron Klain. If your narrative is that gas prices are rising, well, your narrative is out of date. Down arrow, down arrow, down arrow. Read, read this guy. Um, it's not a narrative. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say that's his whole problem. It's, it's an observation a... of the price record. Um, yesterday's average was uh, eight dollars or three dollars and eighty-five cents. Today's average is three dollars and eighty-three cents. It's not technically wrong, um, but a month ago the average was uh, three. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, three dollars and sixty-seven cents. So it's roughly on par. With a month oh, ago. that's up. That's up. It's okay. Yeah, it's up. It's up. So, Twelve cents, thirteen cents. Okay, like, yeah. So the gas prices went up from last month. Yeah, you're right. According to right your yeah, own you're right. Report, report here. Can so, I also say he's also Biden is also going out there. He just said this yesterday. He's saying, "Oh, all these moves, like the release of the last of the strategic oil reserve." He's like, "Oh, this isn't political." Like that's also just condescending. Like, give us a break. Of course, it's political. At least own that you're trying to do something by releasing more of the reserve. But this is the temptation, right, to retreat into your silos because they're being bombarded now by just pure bad news. So all they can do is go find gas buddy guy to salve these wounds. They have to retreat into their silo because the only hope they have of stemming the damage on election day is to push Democrats to vote. 
They've lost independence. There's a CNBC poll out now that jibes with every other thing that we've seen lately, right? Which is independents are now favoring Republicans. I think it's 15 points. No, by approval by independents on the economy is at 25%. So basically, um, uh, independents are moving you know, away from... So they, the only hope they have is in dragging every Democrat, and again, the CNBC poll shows Biden's approval numbers are up because Democrats are coming, aren't telling pollsters that they disapprove of Biden anymore. So he's in the mid-40s for the first time in a long time. But that doesn't mean they're going to go to the polls. You call them, and they answer the phone, and they say, yeah, I approve of Biden. That doesn't mean that they're going to vote. So all they can do is scare scream say that what you're seeing is not true say we're you know help is on the way issue this three point plan that they issued about dealing with gas prices i don't have it in front of me if someone can pull that up and read the hilarious three point how biden is going to deal with gas prices thing that's not for us it's not for independents it's not for anybody but democratic voters who are the only hope that they have of slamming the brakes. Now, here's a terrible, you ready for this? Slamming the brakes on the tsunami. Now, that is one fantastic mixed metaphor. We have a classic mixed metaphor, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay, does anybody have that Biden plan uh, that they issued yesterday, the the three the, points? The three points, yeah. Okay, so it's this. It's yeah. number one, releasing the last of the 180 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that he had authorized in March. Number two, calling for an increase in oil production. And number three, chastising oil companies for not passing savings on to consumers. So this is the summary that was that was uh, offered in, in Politico's morning newsletter. But that basically sums it up. I love that chastising is a step in a plan. Of course. <laughs> So the I White House has been speaking thing, out of yeah. both sides of its mouth when it comes to energy policy for a while. Jen Granholm, when she's in public, laughs about the idea of increasing she's energy the energy production secretary and then goes in front of ener- uh, fossil fuel producers and, and berates them for not producing more in response to economic conditions that je- don't justify any more production to say nothing of political barriers. Uh, the White House's energy policy is obviously completely incoherent, um, and that's how they like it. They have a completely I mean, incoherent ideology when it comes to uh energy why wouldn't their policies be any different it's not even incoherent it's just frankly demagogic like they're calling for increasing oil production there are executive orders that biden could rescind in three minutes that would help create new markets for domestic oil production. Oh, and they say this every 10 years. We can't do anything because it won't come online online for the next 10 years. They said that 10 years ago. Wouldn't that be nice if we came, if it was coming online right now? Um, but the energy is a futures market. Anything, any move they make now affects the, uh, the price of, future, of, the, of, of oil in a futures market because it's all just speculative. Well, and, and they're getting, they're getting a funny, a, a kind of uh, inadvertently, um, uh, negative assist from some of their partisans in the media. Chris Hayes went in uh, 
was on a show yesterday saying, we find ourselves in a situation where keeping gas prices low is key to preserving and strengthening the future of our democracy. Hence Biden releasing oil from the reserves today. I mean, we, we've, we've just, I mean, we've joked about the kind of crazy democracy in peril hyperbole that, that's gone on, but that that might be one of the, the best data points of that argument I've seen yet. Look, this comes, by the way, I'm sorry I'm monopolizing no, this conversation, no, no. but the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which should be renamed the Tactical Petroleum Reserve because we're not using it strategically, uh, is at its lowest level at any point since 1984. And at the same time, we're in the midst of a geopolitical crisis in which energy is playing a very prominent role. Strategic Petroleum Reserve is designed to preserve our capacity to keep everything on the road and moving and on, on rail and moving in the event of a geopolitical crisis, which is readily apparent. It is happening as we speak. Uh, if any other political party, if the other political party, let's be honest, was doing this amid this crisis and for the tr the most parochial of reasons, it would be cause for a five alarm fire, a justified five alarm fire. In February or March of 2021, when the American Rescue Act right? Which was, I think, was it $4 trillion? I don't even remember how much the American Rescue Act was. The second tranche of COVID spending, the Biden COVID spending tranche. At the time, there was a proposal issued by Republicans to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, put $3 billion, it was either $3 billion or three hundred. I can't remember, I think it was $3 billion, to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. At the time, gas prices in the United States per gallon were 2.42 cents a gallon. So at that level, two and a half dollars a gallon, $3 billion, there would have been what? More than a billion gallons could have been put into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, this is some, whatever the math I'm doing is, I'm just giving some weird ballpark thing. It was killed by Democrats who, who apparently said this was a giveaway to big oil. This is how you do something like refill the strategic petroleum reserve, right? You wait till prices are low and you buy on the dip. It's like, you know, uh, classic funding mechanisms. It was a completely sensible proposal and because Democrats were of a mood where they weren't going to do anything that any Republican wanted that involved in, you know, doing anything cooperative with the private sector, it didn't happen. And now gas prices are between three and a half and four and a half dollars a gallon. We are at the lowest point in 40 years. And refilling the strategic petroleum reserve from all the stuff that is being taken out will now cost $7 billion or $10 billion or something like that. And that is where you see the mindset at work, which is, are we, there is no connection between rational long-term thinking and the, we've got to help people. And it's like, okay, well, if we're going to help people and we're in this position, da -da, here's a moment where we could, at the lowest cost we can find over the last couple of years, refill this to petroleum reserve because God knows what's going on here. There are disruptions. There were already disruptions in oil and, you know, stuff going on at the ports and all of that. And Democrats killed it. And here we are like a, a year and a half later and Biden is draining the petroleum reserve. 
it's like he's hot you know it's it's like a uh, anyway, it's just a, a, a fascinating uh, little uh, detail in in the in this desperate effort to kind of find victims or you know the things to blame or something like that, like 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 oil companies. I I don't know. Uh, so that's 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 that that game. Um, uh, let me just step back for a second and talk to you guys. As we are here in the middle of October, the trees are changing color. I was leaf peeping over the weekend and I saw <clears throat> such unbelievable beauty in New England. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And it made me think about our, our advertiser today, fastgrowingtrees.com. Because if you get a fast growing tree from fastgrowingtrees.com next year, the year after, you could be seeing just all the colors that you could possibly want to see in the fall from your tree if you get that kind of a tree and of course fast growing trees curates thousands of plants so you can find the perfect fit for your specific climate location and needs don't drive around to nurseries and big gardening centers and get your car all filthy when you put stuff in your trunk fast growing trees makes it easy to order online your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days whether you're looking to add some privacy, shade, or natural beauty to your yard, Fast Growing Trees has in-house experts ready to help you make the right decision with growing and care advice available 24-7. Even if you've never had a green thumb, they'll make you feel like you do, just like over 1 million ha happy Fast Growing Trees customers across the country. Plus, with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, and you'll get 15% off your entire order now. Through October 31st, get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Noah, I want to talk to you about the rise of the New Puritans and the article, the, se the section that we published in, Jan in the July-August issue called You Are What You Don't Eat, a story about how um, the woke attack on cultural appropriation took the form of wars against local restaurants that were making interesting food using elements of cuisines from other countries cooked by people who weren't necessarily from their countries. Uh, a fantastic piece. Everybody should go read it. Just Google Noah's name and you are what you don't eat and it'll come up and you can, if you're a subscriber, it'll come up very easily. And if you're not subscribed to commentary, commentary.org. Okay. New York Times has a piece today uh, about a about cooking in Israel, preserving a Palestinian identity in the kitchen by Ina J. Khan. Dateline Haifa, Israel, a tangy scent per permeated Miriam Sindawi's kitchen as she scattered flecks of ruby-colored sumac into a simmering pot of caramelized onions following a centuries-old Palestinian recipe handed down by her mother, as many Palestinians move away from the culinary traditions that have been a cornerstone of their culture, family matriarchs like uh, Miriam Sindawi say they feel compelled to pass down their family's kitchen secrets. In 2021, Fadi Katan, a Franco-Palestinian chef from Bethlehem, traveled across the occupied West Bank and Israel in between COVID lockdowns, recording a video series called Teta's Kitchen, in which he met with Palestinian women like Mrs. Sindawi and exchanged recipes and techniques. 
his project, he said, was aimed at reclaiming a cuisine that is part of a broader Arab tradition involving foods like hummus, falafel, tabula, fatush, and shawarma that he felt was being co-opted by Israeli cooks. Quote, food is being used to normalize the Israeli occupation by denying the origin of everything from hummus to falafel. Mr. Katan said, the images of our grandmother's hands working in the kitchen, rolling the vine leaves, dipping the bread of the musachan in oil. These are images of beauty that are being stolen from us. She goes on, the author, to continue. There are many overlaps between Palestinian and other Arab cuisines, and many of the hundreds of thousands of Mizrahi Jews who emigrated to Israel from Arab countries in North Africa in the late 1940s and early 1950s, often under duress, also would have eaten foods like hummus. But many Palestinians worry about the future of a cuisine they say is intrinsic to their identity, especially when it is categorized as Israeli which they feel denies its Palestinian or Arab origins. So Israel not only is, is stealing the blood of the Palestinian cuisine to put into their matzah. Okay. Um, this is maybe the most anti-Semitic article that they have ever published. Mizrahi Jews have also eaten hummus and they brought it to Israel. Really? Mizrahi Jews were expelled from Arab countries. <clears throat> they were expelled. 850,000 of them were expelled in 19, between 1948 and 1950. They had to be flown and saved under, under expulsion rules from Iraq, from North Africa, from, from the Persian Gulf. This is food. This is like crushing a goddamn chickpea and putting some oil in it. John. Yeah. In 2020, we ran an article by Gilead yes, Ini called Who's Afraid of Israeli Food? Or wait a second. Yeah. It might be called. Yes, it is called Who's Afraid of Israeli Food? This is a long standing effort to delegitimize Israeli cult Jewish Israeli culture entirely. It is, it is a way of severing the Jews from the land, from the culture, to say they came here and stole all this stuff. It is not about uh, preserving Palestinian identity. It is about eradicating Jewish identity. I mean, Jews are a stateless people, have been a stateless people until Israel came along for two millennia. So they eat what they can eat where they move in the, you know, and, and then adapt it, whatever they have to adapt to Jewish dietary regulations. So guess what? Corned beef is not a Jewish food. Pastrami is not a Jewish food. <clears throat> shakshuka is. Okay, shakshuka is a Jewish food because it was literally invented in Jerusalem. But I'm just saying, like, the things, if, if we're Ashkenazic Jews, where so where are the... Poles and the Germans complaining that corning and, you know, corning and making cold cuts out of meat is a Jewish appropriation because Jews open delis, uh, kosher delis, using some of the recipes that they might have picked up from their neighbors. Like, what choice does a, what choice does a stateless people have but to, but to eat off the fat of the land? And again, 
Also, these things aren't Palestinian. Hummus isn't Palestinian. You could claim it's Ottoman. Where are the Ottomans in her narrative? <laughs> yeah, or 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 Lebanon or Lebanese. I mean, I would if you had asked me what were the origins of these dishes, I would have said the Levant. I would have said Lebanon and Syria. Maybe they're not. It could be Turkey. I don't know. <laughs> they don't belong to the Palestinians. The Palestinians don't have indigenous stuff in that way. The Palestinians made their living before, you know, over the two centuries before, you know, they emerged as a central player in the, they made their living as kind of brokers and salesmen on the Hajj route from Turkey down to Mecca. That was, that was largely what they, what they did for a living is they were like the innkeepers and restaurateurs and, and salesmen of stuff. Uh, on the road to Mecca, that's that's what a Palestinian was and is, and they they didn't invent tabbouleh. I mean, are you kidding me? And the okay, New York Times so publishes. Okay, here's how so I apply I'm now this done with to my the, rant. The frame, right. So you've done you've done all the very serious work here, but the audience, and it's true that there's an effort to delegitimize in the geopolitical context here. But the audience for this is the New York Times readership, and what does the New York Times readership get out of this? Well, they get what every progressive who subscribes to what I what I write about in this book is a very puritanical approach to um, to life uh, is they get misery out of it. Um, they, it's cross-cultural competence. So they perceive themselves to be very serious and sober and addressing the world's problems, what have you. But it just makes eating hummus or tabbouleh or what have you that much less enjoyable from a sensory perspective. What they're getting out of it is the fulfillment that you derive from the sense that you're just better than your neighbors. You're more educated, you're more culturally competent, um, and you're more attuned to the world's ills, which are ever present, and you have a duty to dwell on them at all times and in all things, otherwise you're not a serious person, which is why we get really contrived efforts to define what cultural appropriation is, which is really a nonsense concept, frankly. Um, in the mo for the most part, it's it's interesting as an intellectual exercise, but it really has very few real world applications. But it's why people consume pieces like the Guardian's Raj Patel, who outlined why apple pie is an assault on um, uh, all things good and decent. It is a legacy of English colonialism. It's a symbol of domesticity. Uh, which forces women to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, uh, the exploitation of Black Caribbean laborers who brought you sugarcane. This is the sort of thing that ruins your enjoyment of an apple pie. But that's the whole point. You should be, you should, it should be ruined. Yogurt is an oriental, encourages orientalist abuses. This is a, a real abstract of an actual study that was published in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, that uh, it's it, it create it throughout a process is quote through a process it um uh. Using a transnational comparative cultural studies approach, this essay investigates how yogurt, perceived as a strange and foreign food in the early mid-20th century United States, became localized through intersectional processes of feminization and de-exotization. This is, it's a lactose product that's supposed, yeah, really, it just gives you good gut bacteria. And that's literally <laughs> all you have to care about. But that's not what, that's not a satisfying thing for this. But the, the satisfaction they derive from it is the removal of your capacity to enjoy it. And they get a very a quasi spiritual experience from from sapping life of its really banal, tiny pleasures. You know the the kind you experience a uh, hundred times a day that you don't even really acknowledge, but that make life worth living. And this is their crusade to rob you of that experience because it, they perceive that. 
to make them better people. Well, that and that that's actually it's for them. It's it's a signal that is a very powerful uh, signal of belonging. And that's why it has to be politicized. Right. So this this article is a perfect example of taking as Noah says, one of life's great pleasures, eating good food um, and a rich cultural history where lots of cuisine has intermingled. And, you know, fusion food is is kind of our history as human beings. Like when you move into a region next to people who are from a different region, you all end up down the line mixing up with each other's cooking. It's a good thing. Right. But this is an effort to say no separatism. It's very presentist, this article, because it looks as looks at these foods only since, you know, the Palestinian Israeli conflict here. So this is a very presentist argument. It doesn't look at the past, but it has to be politicized so that the people who decide that this is some sort of cultural appropriation can either not eat the food and very publicly denounce those who do. And that is what they, they're attempting to try to leech the pleasure from. But it ha- it's a political social signaling thing for them. It's a status yeah. symbol. Most people are not going to stop eating baba ganoush, right? This is a service journalism. The service being now when you do that, you get to be miserable about it. You get to lecture everybody in your in your vicinity and demonstrate your cultural competence, your intelligence, your readership of the New York Times. Okay, can I say something like wildly cynical? Hummus is garbage. I mean, it's not garbage. It does say you crush up some chickpeas, you put in some oil. Your tongue. I love you might put some pomegranate <laughs> seeds in it and it's done. This is a food of poverty. Hum- yeah, but it's much better than food, other foods of poverty that involve. No, cabbage. but I'm just saying that a lot of this <laughs> is a very weird thing because the foods that end up being coming like a source of fusionism are often foods of poverty, a taco, you know, um, Thai Soul street food. food. Uh, really spicy foods often which are which are the creations of an effort to help people who can't have an enormously large amount of quantity of food as a diet to eat something savory that will give them a food experience while Cover eating up the fact re- that it's re- rotten a it's rotten and b that they don't have that much of it okay so the idea that this is the grandest expression of a culture that you manage to doctor some stuff to make it palatable or edible when it is really subsistence eating is itself an act of unbelievable condescension. This isn't a hallmark cultural hallmark. These are, these are, you know, socially adaptive behaviors by cultures that need to, you know, that need to ingest stuff to stay alive. And it's interesting and, 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 and ingenious often, but the idea that this is a high weather mark. Also, who walks around calling hummus Israeli? You said you used the phrase Baba Ganoush is Arabic. It means spoiled daddy in Arabic. It's not Hebrew. I don't know what the Hebrew, it would be something Abba. I don't even know what spoiled is in Hebrew. Like we call these things by Arab words and Arab names. Fatush, Tabuli. Baba Ganoush, hummus, these are not Hebrew words. There is no appropriation. Yeah, you can buy them in Israeli restaurants in New York City. There are now like four or five Israeli restaurants, and there are two Israeli cooks, famous cooks, Michael Solomonov, who mostly works out of Philadelphia, and uh, and uh, and Adelenghi, uh, who works out of London. And so they, you know, have something they call Jerusalem cuisine that is often, you know, has a lot of hummus in it or whatever, or tabbouleh. What? This is not a thing. I don't know who calls this Israeli food. No, no. This the New is York all... Times is giving credence 
to a classic anti-Semitic argument about how Jews are stealing our culture. It is vile. Yeah. Abe, yeah. sorry. No, they call back to the any article, which I think everyone should read uh, who's afraid of Israeli food. Um, uh, when on like TV talk shows, uh, like sort of lighthearted, like Rachel Ray made some Israeli uh, meal, right? That involved, you know, I don't know, hummus and, and baba ganoush, whatever. And the response uh, to, from from Twitter and social media about people who are actually waging this war was, um, this is cultural genocide. I mean, that is where they're at. Doesn't genocide involve taking food away from people and starving them to death? Cultural genocide. And by the way, if you want to talk about cultural appropriation, which I don't and I don't buy and I don't care and take everything you want, eat eat as much Jewish, enjoy Jewish founded culture and Jewish food as much as you want, whoever you are. But uh, what about the ubiquity of bagels? Which is a Yiddish word. Right, it is. That's right, and the and the Bialis, which come yes. from Bialy, would come from the Jewish community in Bialystok. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The whole thing, again, the food, the the cultural uh, the cultural appropriation stuff is. This is a it's a, a wonderful piece that 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 Noah wrote. It's a wonderful piece that Gilead Inni wrote. It is the New York Times giving column inches or space on the web to this argument that is the outrage here. It is an outrage to be giving a home to this argument, which is vile and disgusting. And if you wanted to really do a serious take on it, you would say, gee, why did hummus become, you know, a sort of regular staple of the Israeli diet? Because almost a million people were expelled from their homes due to the creation of the state of Israel and forced to move to Israel in the years after uh, you know, Israel won the the war uh, of independence. They were expropriated. Their homes were expropriated. Their land was expropriated. Their wealth was expropriated. And they brought with them what they had, which was a recipe to take a goddamn chickpea and crush it with some oil and maybe throw in a pomegranate seed. That is, I mean, Thanks this a lot. is the, the point of the book is that these people look like fools to the uninitiated that they're just obsessed with trivia, that they apply an academic framework to every possible thing to the degree that renders them really disconnected from their environments. And it's pretty easy to make fun of them. All but you gotta do is, is try. But it's and, also- and, and assume that they can't really punch back. I mean, there's the assumption here is that this is the vanguard of a vast movement. It's not. Well, and the, 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 I'm glad you said it comes from a sort of academic mindset, but it's a weird kind of- um, memification of of academic words like colonizer, right? So what this does, the word colonizer gets used all the time now to talk about anything. I mean, it's it's, you know, it any undergrad who's who's taken any sort of theory course will start deploying this at every Thanksgiving and and every celebration they go to. Oh, the colonizer this, the colonizer that. It's a it's a shorthand for, as Noah said earlier, I am educated, I know more, I know about the complications of history, and you don't. And so I'm just going to deploy this word to signal that knowledge. But it's not knowledge. It's a kind of ideological uh, lens through which they view everything. In the same way that a lot of people use race in an ideolo- as an ideological lens through which to to 
to look at the past and the present. So it's it's it no, it's right. It's funny, except that it does infect the way people think about something as basic as food. Culture is additive. It is a creative force. So what it does, what cultures do when they're healthy, is that they take what is alive and and incorporate it into the larger stew that is the culture and seek to take what is great in it and add it to the cultural provenance of the of the society that the culture emanates from. That is a healthy culture. When culture becomes subtractive, when it's said, you cannot write about this because you are not intrinsic enough to the thing in itself, that is the sign of a decayed, declining, and diseased culture. Culture should be accepting and open to foreign influences, outside influences, new patterns of uh, old arts and things like that. And here you have this decades-long movement to destroy culture from within by disaggregating it. Culture is an aggregation. That is what culture is. Or, or a synthesis. Yeah, an aggregation. Right, an aggregation and then a synthesis. And the greatest uh, creators of culture are people who synthesize things in a way that no one uh, no one ever thought to do. And it becomes and no something ever, else entirely. Right. It, it's, and it, it reaches it, a bigger, bigger than its parts. Right, reaches yeah. a bigger audience. Yeah, yeah. Who's obsessed with cultural purity? <laughs> what movements in history uh, delve you know deep into the past, some imagined past, to create a, a a a pristine cultural artifact and then resurrect it, and then say we should all revere this invention? What culture? Oh what, what political movements do that sort of thing? Yes, not progressive. Well, they are progressive. That's the thing. They call themselves progressive. In the end, they call themselves. Then this is where this is all heading inexorably. Well, then. There was a socialistic aspect to the well, National Socialists, too. Yes, there? exactly. All right. Well, uh, so I got my uh, got my ranting out for the day, and uh, we'll let you go early. <laughs> I'm going to go order some hummus. Yeah, go, go, <laughs> go, go have some. Uh, really? Yeah, you're starving now. Yeah. I'm so sorry, audience. We okay, spent the last yes. one. I hope you had falafel. lunch. Talk to you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, and Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.